We are starting a new series today called The Gospel According to Mark. Very creative title. Uh, and we just finished our series, Chasing Carrots, which I really enjoyed uh, doing. But this uh, series is going to be a different type of series. We are taking uh, our time and going through the book of Mark. And so, uh, as you've already heard, but I'll remind you, you can get these journals. Um, all the journals it is, it has the has scriptures on one side, has a place to keep notes on the other side. So as you read Mark during the week, as you come on Sundays, uh, this can kind of be, be your journaling, note-taking uh, document uh, as we go through the book of Mark. And I'm not sure how long it's going to take us. So, uh, yeah, no promises there. <laughs> we'll, see. we'll see how long it takes us. Uh, so a couple things about Mark before we, before we jump in. It's... It is uh, likely the first gospel book ever written. Most scholars believe that uh, the books of Matthew uh, and Luke uh, were actually based on Mark as one of the sources along with another source. Uh, and, and so Mark being the first book that was ever written, Jesus being the most influential person in the history of the world, I think we could say that Mark, the gospel of Mark, is the most important text in human history. The most important text in human history. Uh, and so it, it is worth us actually putting some time and focus and understanding uh, what was written down, what it's all about. And I had the opportunity of journeying through Mark for a significant amount of time quite a few years ago. Uh, and I spent uh, three months uh, doing some studies uh, in Mark, and I've come back to it repeatedly through the years. And, and I love the book. I've been waiting to do this series for a long time. And, uh, and, and we're going to jump into it. So, like I said, this is going to be a little bit different than other series that we do. Often we do topical series. We look at different topics. Uh, this is a bit more of an expositional or exegetical series, which means we're going to go through the text. Uh, but we will cover lots and lots of different topics as we journey through the book of Mark. Um, so, book of Mark. We've got to talk about the context. So, so, we're setting the stage this morning for... Uh, how we are going to, what we're looking for, the backdrop of the book of Mark. Every story has the backdrop, and often the meaning of what we're reading, uh, we can only discover in the con- with understanding the context of what's behind the story itself. And so we've we, we got to look at the context, and I would encourage you, after this week, I, I said this to my staff, and they were like, are you kidding me? You can't ask people to do that. Uh, I was like, it's not that big of a deal. I, I would encourage you this week to read the book of Mark in one sitting. <laughs> read it in one sitting. It's, it's not as hard as you think it is. And, and the reason that I tell you that is because when these documents were first put together, they were often read together as a unit. And there's themes and stuff uh, that you will discover as you journey through the book of Mark uh, as you read it all as one thing, then as you just take it verse by verse or paragraph by paragraph, you'll miss some of the, the items and the themes in Mark. So uh, that's my challenge to you. Who's up for it? Okay. It, it, you could probably do it in less than an hour. It's, it's only 16 chapters, and 16 Bible chapters, as you know, are way less than book chapters. So uh, read through it in one sitting. Okay, context. When was it written? Probably about 60 to 70 A.D., most scholars would say. Uh, Who wrote it? A guy named John Mark, likely, who was a companion of Peter and Paul. In Acts, you can read about him. And and here's the fascinating thing about Mark is, is many scholars would say that Mark's view and what he's giving you is actually 
uh, from the perspective of Peter. So you think of the disciple of Peter, think of the stories about Peter. Uh, you'll see Peter kind of highlighted in the book of Mark. And, and so Mark is kind of uh, writing this uh, document from the perspective of Peter. And it's written to Jesus followers who are in Rome who are experiencing extreme uh, persecution at that time, and it's only increasing. And so you'll see themes, we'll talk about themes in a second, but you'll see themes of, of suffering and things like that uh, that are woven through the book. It was written to them, but it's written for us. And, and, and we could say that with every book in the Bible, that, that God was written, writing to a specific people at a specific point in time in a specific location, but he was writing it down for us uh, because it is part of what reveals the living Christ to us. Where? Well, here's a map, and the, this map will be important as we understand the story of Mark as we journey through Mark. Um, but Jesus, as we're going to find out right away, is from a town called Nazareth. You'll see that at the, on the north side uh, of the, the screen there by the Sea of Galilee. And it's an insignificant town, about 500 people or so, and that's where Jesus is coming from. You see the Jordan that comes down there, and the Jordan runs 124 miles in that valley and goes southward to the, through the wilderness of Judea to the Dead Sea, which is the lowest point on earth, actually, 2,750 feet below sea level. Uh, and that Jordan uh, River plays a, plays a role in the story. Uh, you see Jerusalem there at the bottom uh, on the west side of the Jordan River and the land of Judea there, which referred to uh, in the Old Testament as the Promised Land. And so south of the land of Judea and to the east of the Jordan River, you'll see uh, there's desert, there's wilderness. This is the backdrop of the story in the book of Mark. So some of the key themes. You guys staying with me? We're laying a foundation today. Some of the key themes that we're going to be looking at. Uh, Mark wants you to know who is Jesus. Really fancy word for that is Christ, Christology. This, is, this book is high on Christology, high on the person of Jesus, and he is interested in telling you and I who this Jesus is and what he's all about. Mark talks a lot about the way of the cross. We're going to talk about the way. Uh, there's a, scholars would say that there's the shadow of the cross that hangs over the book of Mark. It's, it's there in the very beginning, and we'll see it uh, referred to, uh, the journey towards the cross throughout the story. Uh, discipleship, Jesus called, we're going to talk about this next week, Jesus calls disciples to himself onto, uh, into the way, to follow him along the way. And then you'll notice that in Mark's book, the disciples get it all wrong. They mess up over and over and over and over again. And so we can look at discipleship in Mark as what not to do as a disciple of Jesus. If you read the book of Luke, you'll see the disciples often get it right, uh, just different perspectives. And so uh, often uh, Mark is teaching us how to be a disciple by showing us what not to do as we follow the disciples on the way to the cross. Discernment is another theme in Mark. He talks a lot about having eyes to see and ears to hear which is one of the major themes of the book of Mark. And, and that's why the healing of the eyes, you'll see that show up from the beginning to the end of the story, is such an important theme for Mark. Uh, because he's, he's, yes, telling us stories of healing, but he's also telling us along the way that we all have to have our eyes healed to actually see the kingdom uh, that is before us. Kingdom of God. Uh, we're going to talk about that in a minute, so I'll leave that for now. Uh, and breaking through barriers. You'll see that Jesus repeatedly breaks through barriers, goes beyond borders, 
barriers of religion, piety, tradition, ethnicity, to bring God's good news to those who formerly thought they were excluded from the good news. These are the themes that Mark has in his book. All right, here we go. Everybody say Mark 1-1. We're starting here. Uh, Only 16 chapters to go. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw heaven, the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So these first 15 verses in the book of Mark really set the stage for the rest of his book. He, he has all of his themes, more or less, right in those first 15 verses. He's telling us what to look for as we read the rest of the text. And so we're going to take a little bit of time going through these 15 verses, drawing out some things, and hopefully opening our eyes and our ears to what God wants to say through his Spirit to us uh, as we journey through this book. So the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet. The beginning, there's echoes here of the beginning of the creation story, that God is doing a new thing. In fact, the word the doesn't even exist in the Greek language. It just says beginning. This is the start of something new that God is doing. And so right away we know that in this book there is hope. In this book, no matter your story, no matter your past, there's a new beginning that God is bringing about. And this is a beginning of a story of good news, which is what the word gospel means. The gospel, the gospel word means big, good news. Big news, yes, good news. And it, it's referred to, uh, or the, the meaning of the word actually comes from someone, uh, a herald, who would shout out brand new news for the world to hear, whether someone just became king or some big event happened, someone would proclaim uh, good news, proclaim gospel News. You know, I used to be a youth pastor here at SunWest, and I often think about this when I think of the Herald proclaiming good news. We did something called Wake Up and Smell the Megaphone. And, uh, and so what, how many of you guys were woke up by a megaphone by me at some point in your life? Anybody? Oh, we got a few of you guys. Um, and so what I would do at the beginning of the ministry year, I would, I would meet with parents and I'd say, sign your kid up. I want to come to your house before your kid gets out of bed. And I'm coming in with a megaphone and a video camera. And we're going to wake them up. And so 
week after week, we'd just go into these bedrooms. Uh, and parents loved it because kids were afraid of their rooms being on video, and so they just kept them clean in case they would ever get uh, woken up. And so we'd go in with megaphones, we'd go in with drum cymbals, and we'd go in with all sorts of, uh, sorts of things in the video camera, and I would yell in their ear, flick on the lights and say, wake up and smell a megaphone. And then they would, uh, they'd have these reactions, and we'd show them in slow motion, and it was awesome. And, uh, uh, and every week we would watch these videos uh, at youth, wake up and smell the megaphone. But I, I think, when I think of the good news in this proclamation, this, uh, this person yelling and saying, uh, There's good news here. This is the beginning of something new. In many ways, God is trying to wake up humanity from their slumber and their sleep. And actually, for 500 years before this point, people, the Jewish people thought that God had gone silent. They hadn't heard a word from the Lord for 500 years. They hadn't heard a prophetic word for 500 years. And they thought, God is silent. God doesn't speak anymore. He forgot about us. And here Mark shows up on the scene with the megaphone saying, wake up. There's something significant happening. The beginning of something new is about to take place. This is the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And this good news... It's fascinating because the, even the word of Jesus, it's, it's not the good news about Jesus. Mark is telling us right away that the good news is not an idea. The good news is not a philosophy. The good news is not a, even a theology. The good news is a person. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. The beginning of what I'm about to tell you all revolves around a person. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. And Mark, as we will see throughout the book, weaves in Old Testament scriptures into the story. And he doesn't tell you um, where it's always coming from. Here he tells you, you know, there's something from Isaiah here, but there's also, there's also echoes from Malachi 3.1 that says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, said the Lord Almighty. And Mark takes Malachi, he takes Isaiah 40, he takes some other passages, and he weaves them into the story. Because his assumption is that the Jewish people that he's speaking to know the story. They know the Old Testament story. And so as we go through, we'll, we'll bring in parts of that story to help us understand the story of Mark. So one thing that we need to take note of here is that Mark is telling us who Jesus is, like I said. He, he tells us the titles of Jesus right at the very beginning. I'm going to tell you who this Jesus is, and here is who he is. He's the Christ. Now Christ is not the last name of Jesus. Christ is not a swear word for when you hit the hammer on your thumb. Uh, Christ is a title. Jesus is Jesus' name, which means God saves. Uh, but Christ is a title, and that title means anointed one. Everybody say anointed one. And so this word uh, came to mean over time for the Jewish people, king, that Jesus is king, that Jesus is the ruler that we are waiting for, because as you know, and even if you don't, just so you know, throughout the Israelites' history, they were often under oppression. They were often being occupied by other powers, by other nations. And so whether it's the Babylonians, the Persians, uh, or right here in, in this context of the story where Mark is, is speaking, it's the Romans. 
And so Mark is saying the Messiah, the king, the deliverer, the ruler that you've been waiting for is Jesus. And he has come to liberate you. He has come to, uh, to bring you up from out, out from under the rule and the oppression of the Roman people. He is the Messiah. Now, I forgot that I put that picture in there. That's why that was such an awkward, awkward transition. Uh, the comment I was going to make was, you know, he didn't decide to forget about his royalty and do, do another plan like some people do. He, uh, he came for the purpose of ruling. Other people have different ideas. Anyways, that's sermon failed. It was going to be good if I remembered that it was coming up. Uh, second title. Everybody say son of God. So son of God, this does not mean divinity. This, this term does actually not mean that Jesus is God. Often we have thought that or people think that son of God, but son of God in scripture is referred to, uh, Adam is referred to as the son of God. Israel, the nation, or Israel, the person Jacob, is referred to as a son of God. Uh, and so it's not necessarily uh, talking about the divinity of Jesus. If anything, it means that this person is revealing something to us about heaven. This person is a miracle worker. This person is bridging the gap between heaven and earth. And Son of God, especially for Gentile readers, would raise expectations of this great miracle worker that is coming. So we got Son of God. We got Christ. Those are the two titles that Mark wants you to see immediately. The gospel, the beginning of the good news about a person, Jesus, who is the Messiah, the King, the Son of God, the miracle worker, the one who's going to bring heaven to earth. This is Jesus. Now, Mark loves to hide things in his story. For those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, can you see what is happening? And so he gives us two titles, Christ, Son of God. Um, And if you pay attention, you'll see a third title because he pulls from Isaiah and he says, This person is also Lord. A voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. And it's referring to John the Baptist, which we'll read in a second. John's preparing the way for who? For the Lord, for God himself. And the Lord in the Old Testament, if when you read your Old Testament, it has a capitalized Lord, L-O-R-D, which is what this text has in the Old Testament. It's the name Yahweh. And the name Yahweh was so holy and so precious that the, uh, the Jewish people wouldn't even write it or speak it. And so they would write Lord uh, as a way of talking about Yahweh without actually saying his name. And so here Mark is doing the scandalous thing and saying, not only is Jesus the king that you've been waiting for, not only is Jesus this miracle worker that's going to bring heaven to earth, but Jesus is God himself with skin on. The name that has been too sacred to speak is actually come among us, and he is here. So we have these three titles, Jesus, Christ, Son of God, Lord, and each one of these means something different, and the assumption was not that each one of these were the same person, but Mark brings all of these together and says, Jesus is Christ, Jesus is Son of God, Jesus is the Lord himself made flesh. And there's some things that these had in common. First one is when, if they show up, if one of these three people show up, you will know it. 
And the second thing that they had in common is, is they will rule, which meant in their minds that there's no way that any one of these would suffer. But this is the scandal of the way of the cross that Mark is setting us up for for the rest of the story is that the way of the Christ, the way of the Son of God, the way of God himself is actually a path of suffering. It's a journey to the cross. And Mark actually takes that title, The Way, and he will weave it all the way through his story, and he's referring to the way of the cross, the journey towards the cross. The way is one of self-denial. The way is one of suffering. The way is the way of the cross. So John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea, remember that country of Judea that was south of, uh, south of Galilee there, and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. So John is in the wilderness that we saw, baptizing people from, all, from Jerusalem, all of Judea, in the Jordan River, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so we think that baptism is like this Christian thing, which it has become, but there was practices of baptism before John started baptizing in the Jordan. The Jewish people would be baptized uh, on a on a repetitive, in a repetitive way because they would cleanse themselves. The word baptized means to dip or immerse oneself in water. They would do that to be physically clean, to stand in the presence of God. That was one form. The second baptism that they would do was for Gentiles, and this is more reflective of the type of baptism John is doing. For Gentiles, which just, which just means non-Jewish people, if they wanted to become Jewish, if they wanted to follow God, they would have to be baptized in water, which meant that they were letting go of their old life and choosing a new way of life. And so they would be dipped and immersed in the water, and they would come out and choose to follow Yahweh in the way that the Jewish people were doing that. So here's what's happening. John is calling... Gentiles, non-Jews, and Jews to be baptized. This is the end of a perpetual religious ritual. John is saying that, you know, you can't actually be made right before God on your own effort. And there's a new thing coming. There's a beginning of a new thing coming. And so you be baptized one more time for all time. And then he's also saying that whether you're Jewish or not, we all have to get to God the same way. You can imagine being Jewish. Man, we're God's chosen people. I've been reading the Torah, the Bible my whole life. I've been trying to follow God. And there's all these pagans that are trying to get close to God. And you're telling me that I have to come to God in the same way as everybody else? That's John's message. I went to church my whole life. I went to Bible camp. You know, I went to SunWest Kids Church and Kids Camp, and I learned the Bible, and, and I haven't been as bad of a person as that person, and you're telling me that me and them have to come to Jesus the same way? That's what John's telling you, that every single person actually has to come to God the same way. Through a baptism, 
of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. I'm going to talk about repentance in a, a little bit later, but forgiveness. You know, we often think of forgiveness as this, you know, all my wrongs have been forgiven. Uh, and it does mean the act of freeing from an obligation, a guilt, or a punishment, or something that we have done. Yes, that's the secondary meaning of this word. The primary meaning of this word is the act of freeing and liberating from something or someone. A release from captivity. At Sundance, we have a core four, know God, find freedom, discover purpose, make a difference in the find freedom class, which, um, which is happening today after our service. Uh, you know, I don't want to take Colton's thunder, but he's going to tell you something. Uh, and just to summarize what you're going to hear in our starting point class is that there's two ways that we become captives. There's two ways we become imprisoned. You know, prisoners... You know, there's a fill-in-the-blank that you'll have to do. So, you know, you'll look really smart because you can fill in the blanks and Colton won't even know. You, the first way, a prisoner, you're a prisoner because of something that you've done. Because of a decision that you've made. And many of us feel chained up or locked up because of decisions that we've made in our life and we don't know how to get free from them. We're captives because of something that someone else has done to us. Something else, an action or decision that someone else made that has affected us. And it's unfair because you didn't choose it, but it's impacted you, and you find that you're in change, that you're behind bars, that, that you are stuck in a place because of somebody else in your life and the decision that they made that impacted you. Maybe a friend, maybe a parent, maybe a spouse, maybe, uh, maybe someone you didn't even know, maybe a stranger. And I believe what John is proclaiming here and what we see throughout the Gospels is that Jesus, yes, is going to forgive our sins and our wrongs. But what Mark is really saying to us is there's a king that's showing up that's going to rule, he's going to reign, and he's stronger than anything else or anybody else, and he's come to free you and me from the things that we have done that hold us captive and the things that other people have done that have, are holding us captive. He has come so that we can find freedom. And we've uh, talked about uh, finding freedom and what, what are we doing to help people find freedom here at SunWest. And, and I'm, I'm telling you this now so you can get it on your, on your calendar. Uh, we've been talking about doing something called a Set Free uh, Weekend for almost a year and a half now. And we were just saying, hey, just wait, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And so we finally have nailed it down. Uh, and I would love for you to black out April 24th, 25th here at the church. Uh, we are going to actually believe and pursue this idea that God has come to set us free. By choices that we've made, by choices that other people have made that have actually hindered our ability to become fully the people God's called us to be. April 24th, 25th, here at SunWest, Set Free Weekend. Can I get an Amen. Set free. Everybody say set free. Jesus has come to set us free. Uh, that's what John is proclaiming, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, for the releasing of captives, for the releasing of prisoners. No matter who you are, no matter your story, no matter what decisions you've made, no matter what's happened to you that's impacted you, Jesus has come to set you free. And this is the good news of the gospel that Mark is proclaiming. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey, and he preached... 
saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I won't spend much time in this section other than just say Mark or that John's a really weird dude. He's a weird dude. Uh, when, he, when he says stoop down and untie uh, the sandals, that was something that servants wouldn't even do for their masters. Servants do a lot of things for the masters, but the thinking was to actually untie someone's sandals was beneath the role of a servant. And here John is saying there's one coming that's stronger than I am, that is, that is a bigger deal than I am, and compared to him, I am even less than a servant. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so now Mark is bringing in these uh, this idea that has been part of Israel's history all along in Ezekiel 36, 25 to 26. Listen to this. It says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you, the spirit of God in you, and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land, in the promised land I gave your ancestors, and you will be my people, and I will be your God. In Joel 2, 2.28, it says, And afterward I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and woman, women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. No matter who you are, God wants to put his spirit in, in you. And John is saying, that is going to happen. That's about to happen. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth, this insignificant town in Galilee of 500 people, and was baptized by John in the Jordan River. So why was Jesus baptized? He didn't have sins to confess, but Jesus, we see here, identifies with the human condition. And he identifies with our condition so that we can identify with his. He enters into our captivity so that we can experience freedom. He enters into this world where we are separated from God so that we might be brought into relationship with God. And Jesus comes up out of the water and immediately... He saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice from heaven came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Okay, this word immediately, it's used 47 times in the bookmark. Everybody say 47. Have you ever talked to somebody who just talks in a run-on sentence and then, and then, and then, and then? This is actually how the book of Mark reads in the Greek language. It's like this run-on sentence, this ongoing story. It moves very quickly from event to event. It's hard to keep pace with Mark, and you'll start to feel it as you read the whole thing in one sitting this week. You'll be like, man, this is just moving, 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 moving. And then you will get to the final days before the crucifixion. It starts to slow down. And then it slows down even more at the, uh, when Jesus goes to the cross. And so, uh, so this word is actually driving us to the whole point of the story where where Mark's saying, hey, pay attention, look, this thing's going to the cross, and something powerful is going to happen. So, immediately, because Jesus was or coming out of the waters of baptism, he saw the heavens being torn open, and this word is used twice in the book of Mark, when the Spirit descends on Jesus, and the actual Greek word is there, in Jesus, into Jesus, the Spirit goes into Jesus, when the heavens are torn open, 
And then when Jesus dies on the cross, it says at that point, the curtain of the temple was torn open. And so we see the Spirit of God coming from heaven to earth in the person of Jesus at the incarnation. And then in the Easter story, when Jesus gives up his life on the cross, we see that his Spirit goes out into the whole world. And God says to him, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And the whole gospel message could be summed up in this point that those who put their faith in Jesus, every baptized, believing person, God says to you, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. In you I am well pleased. I want to just pause here for a second and just ask if you believe those words. Some of you, maybe depending on where you come from, the family you grew up in, actually never heard words of affirmation, words of love. And and, and sometimes we assume that God is against us, that God is angry at us. But we here we see the predisposition of God being for us. That God loves you. That God is crazy about you. That he looks at you and he sees son, he sees daughter. And just in, just in your own mind, just pause here for a second and, and see how this feels. You are, start with your name, Matt. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Start with your name and then say that phrase in your mind to yourself. Actually, let's try it out loud. Say your name and then Put in son or daughter, and we'll say it together. Okay, on the count of three. One, two, three. Matt, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. How does that feel? Do you believe it? Because this is the good news that Mark is pointing us to. There's a God who loves you, that the God who's crazy about you, there's this King, there's the Son of God, there's the Lord Himself who has come from heaven to earth. Why? Because He loves you and you're His son, you're His daughter. And with you, He is well pleased. And the Spirit, after Jesus comes out of baptism, the Spirit immediately drives. There's the word again. So everybody say immediately. John's got 80, or Mark's got ADD. Uh, Immediately, again, the Spirit drives him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he is with the wild animals, and the angels are ministering to him. Baptism followed by wilderness. And we see this in other gospel accounts, too, that Jesus was baptized, and the Spirit drives him. So the Spirit is in control. Jesus gives control of his life to God the Father. The Spirit's driving him where? Into comfort. I was baptized, so I'm going to be comfortable now. I gave my life to Jesus, and now everything is going to be great. No. The Spirit drove him into the wilderness. The Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. If that doesn't mess with your theology, I don't know what will. God leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, and he was there with the wild animals and angels were ministering to him. The common lie that many people believe, not even believe, the common lie that is preached by many preachers. And I think sometimes we want the 
the gospel to be as, as accessible as possible. And so we try and paint this beautiful picture, like give your life to Jesus and everything is going to be awesome. Uh, well, it depends what, how you define awesome. Give your life to Jesus. And if you follow him, don't be surprised that you get led into the wilderness. This is the theme of Mark. If you follow Jesus on the way, don't be surprised that you're following him to the cross. This theme of wilderness. Everybody say wilderness. Which is virtually synonymous with desert is a word that has broad resonance with Jews because it recalls the years of wandering between Exodus and the promised land. Between the covenant that God or the covenant that God gives people, he gave them in the wilderness at Mount Sinai. And this was also the place where God would again deliver the people by bringing them back from, from, uh, from exile, which Isaiah speaks about in chapter 40. And so we see wilderness throughout the biblical story that has two connotations or two realities. One, this is a place associated with barrenness, temptation, testing, hardship, danger, evil. But ironically, it's also the place where God's people are formed, where people encounter God over and over again in the wilderness, where God calls a people to himself in the wilderness, where God creates covenant with people in the wilderness. And this 40 days that Mark refers to has echoes in the Old Testament story. Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years. Moses was on Mount Sinai for 40 days and nights. And Elijah was led for 40 days and nights into the wilderness uh, to Mount Horeb. In each of these instances, the wilderness was a proving ground, a testing ground, uh, a place of trial that had to be endured, but also a place of great uh, intimacy that was found with God. Here is what we learn in the biblical story is that people meet God in the wilderness. Where did, where did Moses meet God? The wilderness. I'm, I'm helping me out here. At the burning bush in the wilderness. Where did Jacob wrestle with God face to face? The wilderness. Where did Israel meet God? In the, in the wilderness. Where did Jesus come from in the beginning of Mark? That was a trick question. In Galilee. Just seeing if you guys are paying attention. So why does this happen? Why does God lead us into the wilderness? Why do we experience wilderness in our lives? Well, I think a number of reasons. But a couple of years ago, and I've told the story before, I was biking, mountain biking, uh, out in Kananaskis country. It was a super hot day, and I brought a bottle of water, and I was going to do a big ride. Uh, I had like this epic ride that I had planned, and as I was riding, I, you know, I passed these uh, hippie hikers who were hiking with no shoes and no shirt and singing songs in the wilderness, and I was like, whoa, those, that's interesting. It looked a lot like John the Baptist. I, I, I saw John the Baptist in person in Kananaskis, and so they're hiking, and I saw them. I did like this big loop, and I... Um, and so there's multiple climbs. I was coming back on my last climb, uh, and I got dizzy. I stopped seeing, I stopped being able to see straight. Uh, my body, like, just shut down, and I could barely move anymore. And I hadn't seen anybody in hours. I drank all my water. I had no food. And I just fell over on the side of the trail, waiting for someone to help and save me. And behold, I hear these voices. 
these singing voices, these hippie guys in their bare feet come walking down the trail. And I remember thinking, thank God, thank you sent somebody. And, uh, you know, all sorts of interesting sounds and smells as they were coming down the, uh, uh, and they, they look at me, and they're like, dude, you don't look very good. I was like, I don't know what's happening. I am, um, it was like, you need to eat something. And so they, they took like um, their communal spoon and uh, this, this is like silver spoon, this concoction that they had made with like all sorts of things that I had no idea was like the sloppy stuff. And uh, I didn't care. It was like, it was food. I was going to eat whatever I could. And so I just, I just started downing. Like these guys, it'd been, there's three of them. I'm sure it would shared a few times between them. I just got in there. Uh, I didn't get coronavirus or anything like that. I just, I'm just digging it in. And I, I ate like the whole thing and they gave me all their water. And they were like hippie angels that the Lord sent to my rescue. And so This is what happens in the wilderness. The wilderness or the desert is a place where the things that we've been depending on, the things that we've been chasing, the things that we think are going to sustain us and bring us life actually don't. We just finished a series called Chasing Carrots where we talked about all these things that we look to for comfort, for safety, for security, for hope, for belonging, for purpose. And those things are all a facade. And often we don't know that or realize that until we get in the wilderness and we have nothing else to depend on. And that's when God shows up in our lives. In the wilderness, our bread goes moldy. In the wilderness, there's no water, and so God has to bring water from a rock. In the wilderness, we see over and over and over again that the people of God learn to depend on God so that when they get into the promised land, they won't forget about God. God brings people into the wilderness because the people of God need to learn to depend on Him so that when they get into the promised land, the land of milk and honey, they don't forget to stop depending on Him. Because he has always been a source of life. We just forget that when we're not in the wilderness. So God, by his spirit, allows these wilderness moments to happen in our lives. You know, this last week I was, um, you know, I'm I'm a part of a group that brings some leadership to our national uh, family of churches. And we meet every once in a while. And I was in Winnipeg for some meetings. And uh, a friend of mine who was on that, uh, uh, on the the team there, uh, told uh, the group that his wife, they just found tumors in her kidney, and he had just found that out, and they were processing that. Another one of my friends who was on, on the team, uh, but I was there on, on Thursday night. He said, tomorrow morning, I'm finding out uh, the results. Can you guys pray for me? I'm finding out the results from a test that I'm doing. Um, I forget the technical term for it, but it's like this, this muscle atrophy condition where your muscles deteriorate, uh, and his, his father had it, I think his uncle had it, his brother has it, and I'm finding out tomorrow morning if I have it or not, and it's kind of like a 50-50 chance whether you get it, because uh, it's in the genetics. And so in the morning, after, his, after he got the results from the test, he came back to the, the meeting. Uh, and actually, before, he, before I tell you that, uh, the day before, he said, I... I'm struggling with guilt because if I don't have it, I'm going to feel guilty because my brother and my dad have it. But if I do get it, I'm going to feel guilty because my kids, a good chance my kids are going to have it. Uh, and so he came to that morning meeting and, and he said that, that he has the same condition, it turns out, as, as the rest of his family. Uh, and, we, and we prayed for him. And, and, and that, that was a wilderness moment. I don't know your story, but I've been pastor long enough that I know stories. 
I don't know if your wilderness is addiction, alcoholism, substance abuse, uh, maybe a gaming addiction, maybe uh, a gambling addiction, or maybe you have unfulfilled dreams that you didn't get the job you were going to dream, dream, you were dreaming of. You didn't, you weren't able to have the family or have kids, and, and that was your your dream, and so you're grieving that. Maybe you've lost a parent, a friend, a sibling, or maybe even a child. And I know in that community, all of those things, this community, all those things have happened. Uh, maybe it's, it's cancer. Maybe it's de- debilitating condition. Maybe it's doubt. Maybe you're struggling with doubt and your faith. And you're not sure what you believe anymore. You feel lost. Maybe your heart is becoming hard. Maybe your heart is broken. And these are wilderness experience. And here's the, here's the truth is that we often don't choose the wilderness. We often don't choose it. We often find ourselves in those places. And it's in those places that we can actually learn to depend on God and to be brought into intimacy with God in a new way. So we don't choose the wilderness, but we do choose the Jordan. And here's what I mean by that. The wilderness, I talked about what that meant in the the story of Israel. But the Jordan also has a place in the story of Israel. And the Jordan was what had to be crossed from going from the wilderness into the promised land. And we see that a couple of times in the, in the Old Testament story where the people of God had to cross the Jordan to go into the promised land. And here we have John the Baptist in the wilderness calling people into the wilderness. Jesus going into the wilderness. And he's saying, you have to get in to the Jordan. And what did the Jordan represent? What did this baptism represent? It was a baptism of repentance. It's a baptism of letting Jesus take control of your life of saying, I'm, I'm giving my allegiance to God and I'm not going to live for myself. It's depending on God for the forgiveness, for setting us free. And when we, when we do the practice of baptism, which we're going to do next week here at SunWest, there's going to be individuals that are baptized. It's proclaiming that I am dying to myself and I'm being raised to life with Christ. I'm entering the Jordan. And I'm going to come out into the promised land. I want to experience the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and that's that Jesus is king, that Jesus bridges heaven and earth, that Jesus is God, and I'm giving my life to him. That is what the Jordan represents. There's no land of promise without going through the Jordan. So many of us don't choose the wilderness. The wilderness finds us. We find ourselves there, but every single one of us actually has to choose to get into the Jordan. If you want to live in the kingdom of God, you must enter the Jordan, which means you must die to yourself and say, Jesus, you are king. I'm giving my life to you. The only way I can be made right is because uh, you are God and that you have forgiven me, that you have set me free. And I am receiving that gift. And that's what the Jordan and baptism is all about. And then John ends this whole intro section that now after John was arrested... After John was handed over, this is what the Greek, the Greek literally says, when he was handed over. Interesting fact, which we'll talk about again. Every time somebody is handed over, it's a negative event in the Gospel of Mark, but every time it happens, the Gospel advances. Huh. Every time someone experiences something they didn't want to or didn't plan on, the Gospel the king of the kingdom advances. John was arrested. He was handed over. Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the, the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has, is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. And so 
Kingdom of God basically just means the reign of God. It's actually an activity kind of word. That God is in control. That God is reigning. Whether you can see it or not. So when he says the kingdom is at hand, it's saying the kingdom is actually here. The kingdom is within your touch. It's within your grasp. And, and it's, not, it's a spacious word. It is actually around you. This is what Mark is proclaiming. And it was there in the person of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus. Jesus is king, that, the, that you can actually reach out and touch him. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom is here, but it's not yet. This is the tension. And so we hang on to hope, but we also recognize these places of wilderness in our life, lives. And he, so how do we enter it? John says, or the gospel of Mark says, uh, to repent and believe. Repent means to, turn, to change directions, to go in a different direction. We often think of repent as a bad word. It's saying no about all these things. I'm going to stop doing that. But I would argue that repent is a beautiful, intimate word where we say, I'm saying yes to something else. And I've used this analogy before, but when we say yes, uh, when we get married, we're not thinking about, hopefully you're not thinking about all the girls that you had to say no to. You're saying yes to somebody. It's not saying no to somebody. It's actually saying yes to somebody. This is what the word repent means. It's saying, I, I've spent my life maybe chasing things or, or, or living in a way that wasn't in line with the way God wanted me to live, but I actually want to say yes. And so that means to say yes, I'm turning towards God. I'm turning towards Jesus and to believe. And that word belief is the word pistis, which is not an intellectual word. And I, I said this so many times, but, but I think we just, we, we fall in this trap of thinking that Christian faith is about believing the right things, and it's not. What you believe is important, because how you live comes out of what you think and what you believe. But the word belief, the word pistis, is the word faith. And this is the, the verb form. We don't have a verb form for faith, and so we, we, we don't say faithing. So Translators say believe, but that actually doesn't get at the essence of the word. It's saying repent, say yes to Jesus, and what? Put your trust in him. Follow him. Obey him. Even if you have doubts, even if you find yourself in the wilderness, even if you don't know the answers. And we'll find out that the disciples didn't even know who Jesus was fully. And they were called to repent and believe, which meant even though you don't have all the answers, will you follow me on the way? Even though you're still figuring things out, will you trust in me enough to follow me. It's not saying no to everything. It's saying yes to Jesus and it's saying yes to following him. It's saying yes to getting in the river and saying, I might not have all my life figured out. I might be experiencing in a season of wilderness, but I trust that Jesus is king, that Jesus is the son of God, that Jesus is God himself, and he came to set me free. So I turn to him and I follow him. That's what repent and believe means. I want to invite you to stand as we close. Some of you are in a season of wilderness right now. And I want to invite you, regardless of what is happening in the wilderness, to get in the Jordan, so to speak, to repent and believe. And maybe it's the first time you've done that, Maybe you're like me and you're like, I just, I always find myself, you know, drifting away from the Jordan, drifting away from giving my life to God. 
And the invitation is actually to get back in the water, to die to self and say, God, I need your life. I need your forgiveness. I need you, your presence in my life. I need the kingdom of God to break into my life. And so I just want to invite you to close your eyes for a minute here. Repent and believe. With your eyes closed, repent and believe. Repent, say, you know, I need a change direction. And saying yes to Jesus, I know, means that I probably have to reorient the GPS of my life. Believe means, regardless of doubts, regardless of circumstances, I'm choosing to put my faith and my trust and to follow the way of Jesus. And I would just ask, if there's anyone here with their eyes closed that feels the need this morning to repent and believe, to turn and to trust, just to raise a hand. Repent and believe. Just raise a hand. and believe. Could just with their eyes closed. Anybody else? To raise a hand. I, I need to turn and trust. I want to pray for you. And because I went overtime, I'm going to pray and the band's going to lead us in a closing song. And Jamie, um, you can dismiss us when the song is over. But Father, we just thank you for the good news of Jesus. We thank you that you sent us a king. We thank you that you bridged the gap between heaven and earth. And we thank you, Lord, that it turns out it was you yourself that loved us so much that wanted to call us beloved son, beloved daughter, that you came from heaven to earth to prepare a way for us to know you. And Lord, we know when we turn our lives towards you, when we trust you, that doesn't mean that we don't experience hardship, but it does mean that we have hope beyond circumstance. So Lord, I pray that you would flood this place with hope this morning for each person that raised the hand and said, I need to turn and I need to trust. Lord, may you, with your spirit, fill them in the same way that you filled Jesus. When when the Spirit came from heaven into Jesus, Lord, we thank you that that is what gets to happen to us. And so we invite your Spirit to fill us, to fill us with hope, to fill us with trust, and that the kingdom of God would break into our lives. In Jesus' name we pray.